If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Leviticus chapter 19 for our Old Testament Scripture reading. I think for those of us who have read through or tried to read through Leviticus, we might find this to be a very strange book. Uh, And yet this book is so central to our understanding of how it is that a holy God can dwell in the midst of a sinful people. What is it that God requires? A sinless substitute that would die in the place of sinners. And in the midst of it, God calls that redeemed people to be holy, not only as they live before God, but also as they live with one another. So Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 to 18, and perhaps as we make it to the end, you will recognize a particular phrase that... uh, particular verse that you might think is found only in the New Testament, yet this summarizes so much of both the law and the prophets. So Leviticus chapter 19, verses 9 through 18. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night until the morning. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. But you shall fear the Lord your God. I am the Lord. You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great, but in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer among your people. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, lest you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, turning with me to 1 John chapter 3, for our New Testament scripture reading. We find that the New Testament tells us this very same thing that we just have heard. First John chapter 3, verses 11 to 18. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, 
So we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Now finally, turning with me, uh, if you will, one more time to Matthew chapter 7. So give our attention just to one verse. And yet this is a critical verse, a verse that really summarizes the Sermon on the Mount up to this particular point. Matthew 7, verse 12. Therefore, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Let's go before the Lord as we Pray for His illuminating work. Our gracious God and Father, Your Word speaks to us simply and clearly. And yet, on account of our own sin, our own doubts, our own unbelief, our own finitude, we confess that apart from Your Spirit's work, we cannot understand these things clearly. And so we pray that Your Spirit would be at work in our hearts that you would illuminate our minds to know, that we would believe, and that you would regenerate, or that, that you would uh, renew our hearts and our wills and our affections to love you and to do those things that you've called us to do by your Spirit's power. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, one of my favorite uh, novels is actually a trilogy I've probably read maybe a half dozen times, and it's uh, C.S. Lewis's so-called Ransom Trilogy. I think wrongly named sometimes the Space Trilogy, but those three novels, Out of the Silent Planet, Paralandra, and That Hideous Strength, when you read it, you realize that there is something brilliant at work here. Of course, I say every time I read that, there's something brilliant at work here, but I'm not quite sure what it is. You read it, you recognize you're standing before a work of genius, but I am too much of a knucklehead to grasp what it is that Lewis is actually doing. And yet I keep returning to these stories over and over and over again, particularly that hideous strength. Well, about a year ago, I ended up picking up a book called Deeper Heaven by this uh, author, Christiana Hale, which is kind of a reading guide through Lewis's Ransom Trilogy. And for the first time, it is as if everything, you know, as if the lights had come on. And in this book, she helps illuminate what is present there, but with, you know, for, for people like me, need help seeing what is clearly put there. I think we've all been in that place at some point or another when it comes time, whether you're in school having to read a, a novel for one of your literary classes, and so what do you do? You go to Wikipedia, or you uh, purchase Cliff Notes, or you read some form of review, something that helps summarize that, that work, that, uh, or that film, or that piece of art to help you understand what's staring you in the face, but you need some form of instruction to help you take a, get a grasp on what it is that uh, is before your very eyes. Well, might I suggest to you that that this is what our Savior is doing for us this morning. How many of us read the Old Testament and go, I, there's so much stuff here. I don't know how to make sense of it. 
I don't know what there is to do. What is the Old Testament all about? It is staggering. Well, might I suggest to you that this golden rule that our Savior gives serves in part as a crib sheet of the Old Testament, or what our Savior calls the law and the prophets. Calvin, in commenting on this passage, says, Here we find before us in our sermon's teaching that it contains a short and simple definition of what justice means, particularly as we relate with our neighbors. There's three things I'd like us to consider this morning. First, I would like us to consider the matter of the law and the prophets. Secondly, I'd, love, I'd like us to consider, uh, for us to consider the golden rule. And then finally, I'd like us to consider the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. So the law, the golden rule, and the fulfillment of the law. Perhaps you might have recognized that there are certain phrases that Jesus gives here that echoes and harkens back to earlier portions in this sermon. If you recall, in chapter 5, verse 17 and following, Jesus says he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And now here he speaks, saying in conclusion, as it were, so or therefore, depending upon what translation you have before you, we find that this is the law and the prophets. Might I suggest to you that these bookends uh, serve for us, where Jesus speaks of the law and the prophets, they, it kind of serves like an Oreo cookie. These wonderful bookends that in the center gives to us the centerpiece of Christ's sermon in its totality. If the first part of chapter 5, from chapter 5 to verses 1 to 16, it tells us who we are as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But now from 5.21 to 7.12, Jesus begins to tell us how we as citizens of heaven are to live. In one sense, these things are nothing new. We recognize that Jesus' grounds are horizontal relations, as it were, our relationship with our neighbor. He grounds it in our vertical relationship with our God and Father. We see this over and over again in the Scriptures. You think of the pastoral epistles, where Paul's whole point to Timothy in his first letter to Timothy is that healthy doctrine springs up and flourishes into healthy living. What we believe shapes and governs how we live. You think of the shorter catechism, question three, what is it that the Scriptures principally teach? Well, the Scriptures principally teach two things. What man is to believe concerning God, and the duties that this God in whom we believe is required of man. In other words, the Scriptures teach us principally what to believe, and how to behave in light of these great truths. There is an indissoluble connection. We cannot divorce the two. Well, the same is found here, that life in the kingdom is predicated on a righteousness that is freely given. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they will be comforted, because they will be filled, because their, heart, their, their, their thirst will be satiated with that righteousness that is both imputed 
justification as well as imparted, speaking of our sanctification. Here, as the Spirit has been poured out into our hearts and makes us citizens of heaven, he begins to work in the innermost recesses of our hearts and enables us to walk in his ways and keep his commandments. And that really serves as the centerpiece to the Sermon on the Mount. From five, chapter 5, verse 21, to chapter 7, verse 12, Jesus focuses on what we might call the ethics of the kingdom. You remember in chapter 5, from 520 through the, the rest of chapter 5, he really focuses on what a, a, a true righteousness is over and against a superficial righteousness as he spells it out in both the negative and positive dimensions, as he begins to speak and elaborate on the purpose of the law of God. You have heard it was said, you shall not murder, but I say to you, anyone who harbors anger and his heart against a brother is guilty of murder. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say anyone who looks upon a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery. Here Christ calls us to keep our word always, not simply when we are called before the courts. Here we are called to love not merely our friends, but also our enemies. This is a righteousness that supersedes the righteousness of the Pharisees who only had a superficial religion and religiosity. Only a superficial grasp of what true righteousness looks like lived out. In chapter 6, Jesus begins to speak of a true religion a true spirituality, a true righteousness over and against hypocritical righteousness. As he speaks of giving alms, of prayer and fasting, that these things we do not for theatrical purposes, that they are not intended for show. They are intended for, uh, for true devotion to our Father who sees what we do in secret. And of course, Jesus continues to impress upon us the necessity of a heavenly mindedness, that we pursue not these earthly goods, but that we seek first the kingdom of God and this righteousness that is freely given through faith in Christ, who is this king who has given himself to and for his people. Here we are called to pursue reconciliation and seeking those good things that God freely bestows. And see, it is here when we understand what Jesus is doing in the centerpiece of the sermon that we come to a point where we can grasp what Jesus is when he gives us this so-called golden rule in verse 12. So when he says so or therefore here in verse 12, he's really summarizing the sermon up to this point. Here is the crib sheet. Here is that decoder ring, as it were. Here is the thing that that turns on all the lights. It is the, the rug that ties the room together. This is the thing that makes sense of everything. Here we find what true justice looks like, what true righteousness looks like on the ground in practice. That Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. It is... It sounds so simple, and yet it is so profound. It's a litmus test. Would I like it if this were done to me? 
It really cuts through the fog of ethical dilemmas and situations. We find that the human race has a problem of self-love. Man is, as it were, turned in upon himself. So that when he hears the words of our Savior, he twists and distorts them. He does not say that I would do to others as I would want them to do to me. Rather, man says in his vindictiveness, I will do just as they have done to me. Tit for tat. What you have done to me, I will mete it out to you pound for pound. Of course, we see that even uh, pagan philosophers at their best have said something similar to Christ. If you're familiar with the writings of Confucius, writing several centuries before Christ, even uh, pagan philosophers in the modern world, Immanuel Kant in the 18th century, have articulated something similar to this, something known as the silver rule, where it really takes what Jesus says here and it, and it puts it in its negative form. Do not treat others the way that you would not want them to treat you. There's a lot of knots there. And yet, I think there is some value in understanding that. Think about a parent with their child. The child is caught on the playground hitting somebody else, and the parent pulls their kid aside and says, would you like somebody to hit you? How would you like it if somebody did that to you? And so that so-called silver rule that pagan philosophers on their best days give, it's, it's fine, and so far as it offers restraint, it teaches you how not to deal with others, <coughs> what not to do to others. But here we see the words of our Savior taking it uh, and, uh, and, and broadening the rule. That golden rule that Jesus says here is not simply passive and in terms of refraining from hurting others. But here, Jesus calls us to be active in doing to others what we would love others to do to ourselves. This teaches us something about the nature of love. Love not only bears all things, in that it endures uh, the harms that people uh, 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 enact against us, But true love does so much more. It is active. It is relentless in its pursuit of the good of one's neighbor. The silver rule might basically say, leave me alone and I'll leave you alone. If you don't hurt me, I won't hurt you. Jesus says, no, that's not not what the law and the prophets are getting at. Love demands so much more. Calvin, in commenting on this verse, says, there is no need of long and involved debates if this simplicity is preserved. To do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Think about last summer when we worked our way through the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. The the, the marks of the Spirit in the life of the believer. It's not simply refraining from certain actions but it is actively responding in the midst of a sinful world with gentleness, kindness, long-suffering, forgiveness, charity. 
Here we find that the golden rule exposes how anemic our sinful hearts really are. I think every man is, as one commentator put it, a skillful skillful teacher of justice for his own advantage. What's one of the first things that kid, first phrases that kids learn to say uh, apart from mama and dada? That's not fair. See, we have embedded in us uh, an understanding of right and wrong, at least when it comes to how we've been treated. And yet, for some reason, when it comes to perceiving the injustices done against others, we are so blind and nearsighted and understanding what it is that's going on. We love ourselves so easily, but we fail so pitifully to love our neighbors as ourselves. Perhaps this is why this command is repeated so many times, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Even husbands with respect to wives. A husband's supposed to love his wife even as he loves his own body. We have no problem loving ourselves, and yet that's the standard when it comes to loving others. It's so simple, and yet it's so profound, and we find that this command is so hard because we love ourselves far more than anyone around us. Again, we hear this repeated over and over again as we've, even our multiple scripture readings this morning, As Paul writes to the church of Rome saying, oh, no one anything except to love one another because the one who loves has fulfilled the law. That is its purpose. It tempers our grasp of Christian liberty. As Paul writes to the church of Galatia saying that you have been called to freedom, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity to serve the flesh, but rather to serve one another because the law has been fulfilled in a single word, a single statement that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here we find that here is a litmus test that helps assure our hearts that we belong to God. The Apostle John says that we know that we have passed from death to life because we love our brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. We find here that this horizontal standard, the pursuit of love and reconciliation, actively is grounded vertically in Christ's own love for us. Again, the Apostle John, by this we know love. How is it that we know what true love looks like? Because Christ laid down His life for us. There's the model. Therefore, we also ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. If you say, what does love look like in X situation? Look to the cross. Not only where Christ is the source of our justification, but he becomes the model of what sanctified discipleship truly looks like in self-sacrifice, in giving up our lives, in laying down our lives for our brothers. Little children, let us love not only in word and talk, but also in deed and in truth. And even as we hear Jesus' command, uh, uh, his summary in this uh, part two of the Sermon on the Mount, as it were, that here is the fulfillment of the law, I think it leads us in one sense to despair. Who here can do this on their own? 
And yet that's why Jesus began not with the ethical commands, but he begins by reminding us of who we are as citizens of heaven. That the righteousness we have is a righteousness freely given by Christ. That the righteousness that God requires, he has fulfilled in the person of his Son. Isn't that what Jesus says right before he even prefaces this whole section? I have not come to abolish the law. I have come to fulfill it. That Christ fulfills that righteousness and now he empowers and enables us to walk in the righteousness that he has freely given. Christ both imputes, he declares us to be righteous and then he says, now be what you are. Because as we consider the law and the prophets, even as it reminds us of our ethical duties, it also reminds us of the penalty for those who fall short or transgress the boundaries of that law of love. That the one who sins deserves nothing but death. As Paul reminds us in Romans 6 that the wages of sin is death. And yet... We have a Heavenly Father who has not left us in the lurch. Because now God gives everlasting life, not as a paycheck, but as a free gift. The gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What we could not secure by our own righteous living, Christ has fully paid for us and gives it freely to whoever turns to Him in faith. That though the law requires the death of the sinner, in the gospel we are reminded that the sinless Savior died so that our sinful souls would be counted free. That God the just would be satisfied to look on Christ and pardon me. That Christ being the sinless Son of God, that Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, holy and spotless, without blemish, having perfectly fulfilled the law of God, dies in the place of sinners. That sinners like you and me can receive the gift of righteousness and life. And having been made righteous, he now enables us to grow and walk in that righteousness in which he has called us. You are righteous in Christ. Now be what you are. Here we are reminded of a Savior who tells us how we are to live as citizens of heaven. Not that we might become citizens of heaven, but because we are. Because we are strangers and pilgrims in this world. Called out. Regenerated by the Spirit with hearts renewed and sanctified and made pure, freely of God's grace. God says, though you were once aliens and strangers, I have now adopted you, and now I am your heavenly Father, and now here is the new code of conduct by which you are to live, because you are now members of a new and better household. And I will never cast you away. Here, our Father calls us to follow the path of our Savior. God does not reckon us. He does not deal with us as our sin requires. 
but through His Son, He has covered our sins at great cost. And now He calls us to love one another just as He loved us. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come before Your Word this morning, and we recognize how simple the summary of the Law and the Prophets are. And that simple statement your son gives, yet we recognize how profound it is and how unable we are able to keep even this unless your spirit works in our heart. We pray that your spirit would be at work. That you would give us the wisdom and insight that we might love our neighbor as ourselves, That we would do to others as we would have them do to us. That we would pursue actively righteousness, peace, reconciliation, and that the world around us that continues to fight and bicker and quarrel would know that we are Christians by our love for one another and for you. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.